We are in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. That's where we are as we've gone through this book. We are now coming to the end of it. If you don't have a Bible, I'd ask that you grab one of those blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you. Flip that open to page 1023. That'll bring you right there to 1 John chapter 5, and again, specifically verse 13. Everybody sick free? No. If you're not, raise your hand. Okay. We've identified them. Okay. Excellent. Stay away from those people. Uh, boy, it's going around bad. So, Okay. So listen, I entitled this message, Having the Certainty of Having Eternal Life. And you can follow along inside of the bulletin that you may have on the inside left side. There's an outline there. Many years ago, I read a a book titled Evangelism Explosion. Evangelism Explosion. It was written by a Presbyterian pastor named Dennis James Kennedy. Kennedy. Dennis James Kennedy, or better known as D. James Kennedy. The man was uh, very well known and loved by many people in the Christian community. And I say was because he passed away in 2007, went home to be with the Lord. And when he passed away, the White House at that time even issued a statement Uh, from the president and the first lady expressing their sadness over his death. So this man was well well known. One of the things I really liked about D. James Kennedy was the passion that he had to see every single Christian, every single one, engaged in the work of evangelism, of evangelism, which is committed to telling people about Jesus Christ with the hope that many more might be saved and become possessors of eternal life. His book that I just mentioned, Evangelism Explosion, is basically a training manual. That's what it is for the church that was designed to motivate and mobilize the entire church to this great and rewarding task of evangelism, of sharing the good news, and it is good news, about Jesus Christ. Sharing it with all who are lost and are willing to give an ear and hear that truth. And by lost, beloved, in case you don't know, I mean those who do not have a saving, authentic, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what I mean when I say lost. You know, sometimes... I've heard Christians say, listen, I'm lost. I don't know where I'm going. I say, you're never lost. If you're a Christian, you're never lost. You just don't know where you're going. That may be true if you're driving around or whatever. But as a Christian, you're not lost. But if you don't have Christ, you're lost. If you don't have a saving, personal, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ, you are really lost in the worst way. Well, as I was studying this week and thinking of the verse that we're going to look at here in a moment, I was reminded of something that I learned from that book, Evangelism Explosion. Evangelism Explosion. So let me quote now from chapter 6, which is titled, Asking Diagnostic Questions. Asking Diagnostic Questions. Kennedy wrote this. We want to offer people eternal life in Jesus Christ. That's what we want to offer to them. So he came up with two diagnostic questions to enable us to determine whether or not they already have what we want to offer them. And second, what are they basing their hope of eternal life upon? Okay, so those two questions are, and I've used them many times, have you come to a place, 
This is the first one. Have you come to a place in your spiritual life where you know for certain that you have eternal life? Or is that something you would say you're still working on? That's the first question. And question two, suppose you were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, over the years, I have asked those two questions in different ways of people many times. But I have found that the responses have been very similar, very similar. To question one, typically the answer is, you know, do you know for certain? No, I am not really certain. In one way or another, that's what they tell me. I'm, no, I'm, I'm, not very, I'm not certain of that. And two, what would you say to God if he asked, why should I let you into my heaven? They would, people often say, well, I'm, I'm not really sure. They're usually dumbstruck by that question. They don't even know what to do with it. But as I wait for them to answer, they'll usually say, well, I'm just hoping he'll let me in. You know, I've, I've done the best I can. I've, I've been a good person. I've tried to do the right things. I haven't murdered anybody or whatever. It's something like that. Okay. And just in case you're not sure, that's not the right answer. But that is the answer I typically hear. Additionally, in response to the first question, some have told me when I ask, hey, are you certain? Have you come to a place in your life that you're certain that you have eternal life? And they will look at me and say, no one can be certain. And in fact, they imply that I'm, I'm somewhat arrogant to even be asking the question or to assume that anyone can be certain that they have eternal life. Beloved, not only is it possible for an authentic, real, genuine Christian to be certain that they possess eternal life, that they have been truly saved, and that when they die, they will be completely accepted and welcomed by God into His heaven. But it is also important for the person who is placing all of their faith, all of their trust, all of their hope in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior to know, to really know that it's not in vain, that it's not useless, that it wasn't just a big waste of time, but it is absolutely the very best thing any human being can do. This is what I want to talk to you about this morning. So today, we're, we're just going to focus in on one verse. I don't normally do this. Just one verse. Because I felt it was important to spend some extra time on this one verse, and I, I didn't want to just blow past it. You may not remember, but we started this study in 1 John, June 17th of 2012. June 17th, 2012. And here we are in 2013, January. We are now coming to the end of this very powerful book. We are in the final chapter and we are in the final section of 1 John chapter 5. And we're going to be looking just right today at verse 13. So just follow along as I read it. It's short but powerful. The Apostle John. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. So we're going to ask and answer, ask and answer three questions. This is how I decided to approach this text. We're going to ask and answer three questions regarding this verse. 
so that we might understand how true Christians are made certain, are made certain of their salvation, how they can know for sure that they possess eternal life. Those three questions are, one, who did the Apostle John write these things to? Two, why did the Apostle John write these things? And three, what are the these things that the Apostle John referred to? Simple, simple, but I think it'll make sense as we go along. So let's look at the first question together. Who did the Apostle John write these things to? Let's look back at the first part of the text. That's where we will find the answer. I, the Apostle John, write these things to you, and then he defines them, who believe in the name of the Son of God. John was writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. Let's, let's break that down. I don't want anybody to just take that, that sentence for granted, or maybe they are not sure what that means, but let's just be clear. In the verses that take place just before this one, verses 6 through 12, we looked at those last week of chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. John made it clear in that section of text that God has testified to the truth that Jesus Christ is his son. That Jesus Christ is his son. The one through whom eternal life can be obtained. Through Jesus Christ, his son. And we also learned to say otherwise or to think otherwise is actually to make God out to be a liar. Because God has testified to us concerning his son, that being Jesus Christ. So just to be clear, to believe in the name of the son of God then is equivalent, based on the context, to believing in the name of Jesus. Since Jesus is the one and only son of God. You okay with me so far? All right. But what is meant by the phrase, believe in the name Believe in the name of the Son of God. He's not saying believe in the Son of God. He says believe in the name of the Son of God. One writer says this. I'll explain it to you in a second here. He says this. Name in the scriptures, that word, name, when when he's talking about that, stands for all that a person is, does, and represents. Stands for all that a person is, does, and represents. So, Give me a second. Psalm 22. You don't have to flip there. I don't have it in my notes. I just have the reference here. Psalm 22, for instance, verse 22. The psalmist is speaking about the Lord, and he says in Psalm 22, verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. What is he talking about? I will tell of your name. He's talking about the Lord. So is he just going to shout out the Lord's name? No, he's talking about, I'm going to tell of who you are. I'm going to tell of all that you have done. I'm going to tell of all that you represent. For instance, we often pray in the name, right, of Jesus Christ. Okay? So let me make some connections here. And we do that because in John chapter 14 and 15 and 16, several times Jesus says, when you go to the Father... Pray in my name. Does he mean what you do is you simply attach his name to the end of the prayer and then it's good to go? 
So in other words, you can say whatever you want, and then you say, in Jesus' name, and then that's what he meant, and then you're good to go. That's not what he's implying. It's not like a magical formula. You didn't say in Jesus' name, so it's not going to come true. It's not going to come to pass. No, when he says pray in my name, he's saying pray in my authority. Pray because it is through me and what I will do for you that you have access to the throne room of God. When I pray in Jesus' name, when I pray to the Father and I say in Jesus' name, I'm reminding myself, I'm not tagging on his name to the end of a prayer just because, I'm reminding myself that it's only through Jesus, who he is and what he has done, that I have direct access to God the Father. Okay? So, think about this, a name. Think about what I said. In Scripture, a name stands for all that a person is, does, and represents. You guys, any of you seen Lion King? I need to know how many. How many of you seen Lion King? Okay, for some of you, this will not make any sense. But for the rest, you're going to get this, okay? Do you remember that scene where the, are they hyena? The hyena are down in the den and Scar is up here. And they, Scar comes and one of the hyenas go, Oh, I was scared for a second, Scar. I thought you were Mufasa. Now, Mufasa is who? Big Daddy, Lion King, right? And they go, ooh, that name. When you say that name, I get the shudders. Say it again. And then one stupid hyena goes, Mufasa, ooh, Mufasa, ooh, say it again, right? What is it about, what is it? Was it just the name? Was it the sound of the name that made the hyena shudder? It's not the name, guys. It's what the name represents. The name represented power and authority and strength. It represented a king, Mufasa. Okay, so if you didn't see it, I'm sorry, but hopefully you still got the idea. When we talk about the name of Jesus, we're talking about what it represents. Okay? There's power. There's authority. There's salvation. There's eternal life. So to believe in the name of the Son of God or to believe in the name of Jesus is simply to believe in all that Jesus is. All that he has done and all that he represents. Power, authority, salvation. According to the word of God, excuse me, according to the word of God or the scriptures, let me just tell you some things you may already know or maybe you don't. Jesus, in regard to who he is and what he has done and what he represents, he is the sinless and righteous Perfectly divine son of God. He is the God man. God in the flesh. The one who was supernaturally born, beloved, of a virgin. Of a virgin. He lived the perfect life. He obeyed God fully and completely, his father. And willingly, willingly, beloved, he was no victim. Willingly died a substitutionary and sacrificial death in order to save every sinner who ever has or ever will put their trust fully in Him and what He alone has done on their behalf. He is the resurrected one who is completely or has completely conquered death. And He has ascended again to be with His Father in heaven. He is the one and only mediator or go-between between between us 
and God the Father. He's it. So John now, with all of that, is writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. To those who believe everything that is true and has been revealed to us about this one, Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he did, and what he represents. And as a result, are trusting. You believe all that, as a result, you will be trusting in him alone and nothing else for your salvation. For your redemption. For your complete forgiveness of sins and for permanent reconciliation with God. That's who he's writing to. That's who John is writing to. Additionally, the word believe. The word believe, when in the text here, it says you believe in the name of the Son of God. It's in the present tense. I've told you this before. It, it means that there is an ongoing thing happening. They are continually believing, okay? In the Greek, it's in the present tense. They're continually believing. Those who John wrote these things to are those who are continually believing in the name of the Son of God. They have an ongoing faith or trust or belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God or who is the Son of God. Beloved, listen to me. Authentic, real, biblical faith or belief in Jesus is always viewed in the Scriptures, in the Bible, in God's Holy Word, as an enduring and persevering belief. It is always viewed that way. Authentic belief. It is not an on-again, off-again. It is not that in the Scriptures. It is, oh, I believed ten years ago, then I stopped believing, then I believed again, then I stopped believing, then I believed again. That's not found in the Scriptures of authentic Christians. Now, that doesn't mean that true Christians won't experience doubt to some degree at different times in their life. They will. They will. Or that the circumstances in their life won't challenge their faith to the core. That happens. That does happen. But here's what it does mean. It means that their belief and trust in faith in the person of Jesus Christ will ultimately persevere. It will. It will persevere. It will continue. It will go on until the day that their faith becomes sight. So the bottom line is this. John wrote these things to genuine, authentic Christians, to those who already had an enduring faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as their Savior. As we read in 1 John 2.21, he wrote to those who knew the truth, who knew the truth. He says there, I write to you, same audience, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lies of the truth. I'm writing to you guys, you already know the truth. You know the truth about Christianity. You know the truth about the person of Jesus Christ. And you believe it. So why am I pointing out the Christian identity of the people that John wrote these things to? Well, I'm doing that because that's foundational to the next two points. Really, that's why I'm doing it. Just so that you're very clear, who is John writing to? To those who are authentic Christians. To those who are believing in the name of the Son of God. Believing in all that Jesus Christ is and did and represents. That's who he's writing to. 
He's not writing to unbelievers. He's not writing to lost people. He's not writing to people who reject the truth about Jesus Christ. He's writing to authentic Christians, okay? Now, with that understanding, let's look at point two. Why did the Apostle John write these things? Look back at the text, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. What John wanted to accomplish in writing these things, and we're going to talk about these things in the third point. What he was wanting to accomplish was to give his Christian readers that we've already defined, those who are believing in the name of the Son of God, he wanted to give them a way for them to be assured that they were truly the possessors of eternal life. Okay, so let's look at this a little closer. Let's start with the words eternal life. Let's start there. When people hear the phrase eternal life, they may think of it only in terms of length or duration. In other words, eternal life is a life that goes on forever and ever. It has no end. It is everlasting. It is everlasting. Now, just hear me. While it is okay and appropriate to think of eternal life in that way, it is everlasting. It is not the only way to understand it. That is a limited understanding of all that is meant by this idea of eternal life. On the eve of his crucifixion, so the night before, our Lord and Savior was nailed to a cross. He spoke about eternal life. He spoke about eternal life and he said this in John chapter 17 to his disciples. He said, actually he was praying and then he said this, just follow along. Father, speaking to God as Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that The Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh, over every human being, over everything created, to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what Jesus says in regard to eternal life. Now, I'm going to read a couple of things for you here from some comments that are made in regard to this particular passage and what Jesus says about eternal life. Listen, and I'll try to explain if it's not too clear. Eternal life, as defined here by Jesus, involves the experience of knowing the only true God through His Son. It is a personal relationship of intimacy which is continuous and dynamic, full and complete and ongoing. The word know, he says, and this is eternal life, and they know you. That word in the original Greek here in the present tense was often used in the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And sometimes it's used in the Greek New Testament. And it describes that word, hear me now, it describes the intimacy of a sexual relationship. You can see that in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 and Matthew 1 verse 25. When he knew her, 
That's what they're talking about. So the idea here is that a person who knows God, they have the most intimate personal relationship with Him that is possible. It is an intimate relationship. It is not just knowing about God. I've said this before, but that's not what he's talking about. And this is eternal life, that they know you. He didn't say know about you. He means have an intimate, the closest possible personal relationship with you, God. That's eternal life and Jesus Christ. This relationship, the writer says, is eternal. It's not temporal. It's eternal. It goes on forever. For God himself is eternal. Eternal life is not simply endless existence. Everyone will exist somewhere forever, beloved. Everyone will exist somewhere. There is eternal death. The Bible talks about it. There is eternal death. That goes on forever and ever as well. But this is eternal life. And he says, everyone will exist somewhere forever, but the question is, in what condition or in what relationship will they spend eternity? Okay? One more quote, and then I'll kind of come back, kind of bring it all together. In regard to John chapter 17, verse 3, the writer says, it is not described in chronological terms, in other words, length, but by relationship. That's what I want you to see. Yes, eternal life includes duration, everlasting life. But more importantly, it's speaking of relationship. And not relationship with just anybody, but relationship with the eternal God. The most intimate relationship possible and his son, Jesus Christ. So the writer goes on to say, life, just try to follow. Life is active involvement with environment. Would you agree with that statement? Life. Because life is, I'm involved in some way, I'm interacting with my environment, right? Death is the, the end of involvement with the environment. Okay? Whether it be physical or personal. Do you understand that so far? So death, no more involvement with your environment. Life is involvement with the environment. The highest kind of life is involvement with the highest kind of environment. A worm is content to live in soil. Right? The worm is happy. To live in soil. That is his environment. He interacts with that environment. But we need not only the wider environment of earth, sea, and sky, but also contact with other human beings. We need that interaction. And for the complete fulfillment of our being, for the full satisfaction of who we are and how we were made, we must know God. I love that. For the complete fulfillment of our being, we must know God. Not know about Him, but know Him through relationship through Jesus Christ who makes it able for us to have that relationship. This, said Jesus, constitutes eternal life. So let me wrap up here. The eternal life that every true Christian possesses, beloved, is everlasting life with God. It is everlasting life with Him. It is intimate fellowship with Him that begins, hear me, it begins the moment that you, have, that you sincerely place your faith and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior. And this eternal life begins there and continues forevermore, for all time, even after your life on this earth 
comes to an end. Now, John wants his Christian readers to know that they possess this life, that they have this life with God, that they abide in God and God abides in them, as he says in 1 John chapter 4, 15, that they have a relationship with their creator that cannot be undone, that they possess eternal life. One more time, go back to the text. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. You see that word there? No? In the original Greek, the verb know in this verse implies knowledge that is characterized by assurance. Something that is known with certainty. With certainty. John wrote these things to those who believe in the name of the Son of God that they would be sure or have no doubt about what they possessed. That is eternal life. That they would not wonder or question if they really had a personal relationship with God or doubt if they were really His children after all or wonder if they truly were saved. Now, why would they doubt that? Why would they doubt that? Well, we've gone over this before, but in case you've missed it or you forgot, let me remind you. During the time that John wrote this letter, there were some people that had previously associated with the Christian community. They identified with that Christian community, at least outwardly, okay? They said that they were one of them. And they did this for a while. But eventually, these people withdrew, separated themselves from this Christian community. John refers to them in this letter in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. This is just by way of reminder. Speaking of them, he says, they went out from us. They left the Christian community, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, if they had been authentic, genuine Christians believing in the name of the Son of God, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us, including himself. Those who left rejected the truth about Jesus that was taught by the apostles of Jesus. The authorized representatives, Jesus' ambassadors were, were, who came and were to share the truth about Jesus Christ. They rejected it. They also, these who left, taught erroneous or wrong things about Jesus. Things that were not true. And they, by the way, did not live or act as true children of a holy and loving God should act. Or that you would expect to act. Yet, they attempted to justify arrogantly their behavior. And then they claimed that they alone were the ones who really knew God. You get, this, you get the picture? So they're associating with the Christian community. They're identifying as Christians. They're hanging out. They withdraw. They reject the truth about Jesus Christ. They start living in a way that is contrary to how Christians should live according to the word of God. 
And then they claim, oh, but we got the truth. We actually have a relationship with God. We have a saving relationship with Him. We really know Him. Now, I would imagine during this time that these people became friends. Maybe it was even family members who departed. Right? So there's relationships there. So this, no doubt, caused the true Christians that John was writing to to maybe begin to wonder if they were mistaken and wrong all along to believe the apostles' message about Jesus Christ, to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and to put all of their hope, all of their stock in Jesus for their salvation. Maybe they're thinking that they didn't possess eternal life after all. Maybe the ones who left knew something they didn't and actually were the true possessors of eternal life. That's what's going on, beloved. That's what's going on behind the scenes in this letter. You get the situation? It's serious. But the Apostle John, the one who wrote this letter, he knew the truth, beloved. You know how he knew the truth? He was right at the side of Jesus for three and a half years during his earthly ministry. He was right there. He saw him up close and personal. He walked with Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He heard Jesus. He spoke with Jesus. He was taught by him. He was an eyewitness. Not far away, but right there in that circle. An eyewitness to his life, to his death, and to his resurrection. The Apostle John. He knew, he knew that whoever does not have Jesus, whoever does not have the Son of God, does not have eternal life. For eternal life is only possible through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And when I say that, I mean faith in who He really is. And what He actually did to bring about salvation for sinners. So John sits down. Maybe he wasn't sitting, maybe he was standing, I'm assuming. But he sits down and writes these things to his Christian brothers and sisters that they might not doubt or worry or worse yet get led astray by those false teachers, the ones who had departed from them. But instead, John is hoping that they would know without a doubt that they are really the ones who possess eternal life. That they are the ones who have become the children of God, who intimately know God and are intimately known by Him, who abide in Him and He in them. That's what he set out to do when he wrote 1 John. So that brings me to the last point. What are these things that the Apostle John referred to? You're right, because he says, I write these things. I write these things that the, that you, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that you may be certain that you possess eternal life. So we need to know what these things are. I believe the most natural way, the most natural way to understand what these things are is to see them as referring to the entire letter of 1 John. It's the entire letter of 1 John. And here's where it's going to be hard for me, because really, 
It would be awesome if we could just read through the entire letter of 1 John right now. You, you all look very excited and you want me to do that, I can tell. But I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Because you missed something. I mean, here we're just in verse 13, but it's, he's referring to the entire letter. If you've been with us, then hopefully this will have more of an impact. I'm going to try to highlight a few things. But I believe he's referring to the entire letter. I consider this a purpose statement for the letter, meaning it is John's primary reason for writing the letter. Hey, guys, I wrote these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why I wrote this letter. To assure Christians that they are true possessors of eternal life, that they are truly saved. It's worth noting that at the end of John's gospel, just for consideration, at the end of his gospel, there's four gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the fourth gospel. John wrote the gospel of John. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. We're in 1st John right now and Revelation. At the end of that gospel, he makes a similar statement that just popped up. He makes a similar statement here, we'll look at it in a second, that identifies his purpose for writing that book as well. So he says there in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. He's referring to the gospel of John. But these are written, the ones that I wrote down that are spread from chapter 2 all the way through this book, the great signs that Christ has performed, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. What is He talking about life? He's talking about physical life? Is He talking about, He's writing to people that are alive? No, He's talking about eternal life. So according to John, he wrote what we call the gospel according to John so that people, listen, hear me, would read it. Primarily, he wrote to Jewish people, beloved. He wrote to Jewish people because they were confused. Okay, they were confused. This was written around the end of the first century. The Jews that had rejected Jesus now after this time, their temple had been destroyed. They had kind of been dispersed. They don't even know what to think anymore. Where's God? And John says, he came. He came and you missed it. You rejected him. Your Messiah. You, t- you crucified him. So he writes John and he says, hear me people, see the signs. And by seeing the signs, I'm writing these to you that you would no longer be unbelieving, but you would believe that he was the one and that he is the one. He is the son of God. And if you believe, and if you put your faith in Him as your Savior, you too will have eternal life. That's why he wrote the Gospel of John. And at the end of John, we see this this purpose statement, okay? So now we come back to 1 John. And here we go again, but this is a little bit different. 1 John is not written so that people might believe Jesus is the Christ. He's not writing it for that purpose. He's not writing it so that people might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah. Rather, it is written to those who already believe that. But now he wants them to know, you who believe, know this for certain. You have eternal life. You have eternal life. And here's how you'll know. I wrote you these things. The letter of 1 John. So let's talk about that a little bit. 
How exactly were these Christian readers, those who believed in the name of the Son of God, able to know by reading about these things that they had eternal life? Here's how. What John gives us, as you've seen, if you've been with us, through the letter of 1 John, and I would encourage you, today, tomorrow, go home and just read through the letter of 1 John. Just do it after we're done with this. Read it. It's It's powerful. Read the entire thing. It's five chapters. It won't take you that long. Throughout this letter, John, if you will, creates these pictures, okay? Pictures of what it looks like to be a true child of God. To be a person who possesses eternal life. Who has an intimate and ongoing relationship with God. Do you understand what I'm saying? He says, look, you want to know what it looks like when someone really truly has a relationship with God, truly is his child, you want to know what that looks like? Here you go, here you go, here you go, here you go. This is how you know. So, for instance, he gives us pictures like the Christian's life is marked or characterized by obedience to God instead of rebellion to him. Did you hear me? That's one picture. The Christian's life, the true authentic Christian... Their life is more characterized by obedience to God instead of rebellion against Him. So you see that in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Or he gives this other picture. The Christian life looks like this. They believe the truth, all of it about Jesus. They believe it. They're trusting in it. They don't believe the lies that those who do not have a relationship with God believe. Okay? They don't believe those lies. About Jesus Christ. Like those who had departed and left the group. Or how about this picture? The Christian is not in love with the world. They're not in love with the world. Their, their life is progressively, that love for the world is diminishing. Which is... Which is the opposite is true of those who do not have a relationship with God. They love the world, man. They can't get enough of it. When is the next time I get to go to Vegas? I can't wait to sin. I can't wait. Beloved, that's not a child of God. We saw that in 1 John 2... 15 through 17. The other one, the belief, we saw that in 1 John 2, 18 through 27. How about this? The picture of a true Christian is that they love one another, other Christians, in real and tangible ways. Instead of showing no concern for them or even contempt, hatred, disgust for them as the world does. Those who are lost, those who have rejected Jesus Christ, those who want nothing to do with Him. The true child of God loves his brothers and sisters in Christ. Does he do this perfectly? No. But it characterizes his life. That's why the true child of God plugs into a local church. To be around their brothers and sisters in Christ that they might serve them, love on them, be with them, encourage them, exhort them. Use the gift that God gave them to benefit them. That's why they do it. Or that's why they should do it. How about this? The true Christian, we went over all these as we went through 1 John. 
the true Christian, the authentic Christian, they grow more and more intolerant, not of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Hello. But of their sin. The true child of God, the one who has an intimate relationship with the God, the one who possesses eternal life, the one who abides in God and God in Him, the one who has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them, grows day by day, week by week, year by year, more intolerant of their sin. They learn to hate it. They're disgusted by it. And by the power and grace of God, they flee from it. Little by little, more and more. Unlike the one who is not a child of God. They wallow in it. They want more of it. They're intolerant of righteousness. They hate you dumb Christians and all your righteous talk. Stop reminding me of all that. I hate righteousness. And I hate the God of righteousness. They may not say that, but their life proclaims it. And they give their body and their mind and their money to sin again and again and again. And they have complete tolerance for it. They even encourage others in it. That's 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. So hear me now. As his Christian readers, John's Christian readers, examine their lives in light of these pictures or these things, as they read those things, they would be able to see the similarity between their life and the life of a true child of God. And by that, they would be assured that they actually possessed eternal life. That they were truly saved. Which is exactly what John wanted them to be certain of. John knew them. He knew their lives. He knew who they were. He knew they loved the brethren. He knew that they strived to keep the commandments of God. To follow after God and Christ. He knew they had a disdain for this world. They were not in love with the world. He knew these things about him. He knew these people. So he's saying, that is the evidence, beloved, that you are possessors of this supernatural eternal life. Now, let me end this message where I begin. Have you come to a place in your spiritual life where you know for certain that you have eternal life? Just think about that for a second. Do you know for certain? If yes, if that's what you're saying right now, then I would ask you this question. How did you come to know for certain? How exactly did you come to know for certain? Let me just, let me just read a couple of these things to you that I was just talking about. These are right from Scripture. 1 John 2, verse 3 And by this we know that we have come to know Him. By this. Not know about Him, but have intimate relationship with Him. This is how, if we keep His commandments. We talked about this. This is not perfection. No one keeps or does all that God has required of them. No one does it perfectly. But there's a pattern in their life. A pattern, a desire, a want to, 
a willingness and eventually it manifests itself in actual obedience. That's what John says. By this we know. Then he says here in 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He's talking, he's saying we, me, John, and you, my readers, we know we have passed from death into life. What is he talking about? These people are all alive. They weren't dead. Yeah, they were spiritually dead. They did not have relationship with God. He's saying we know we've passed from death into life. Why? Because we see that life at work in us. Because we have a love for other Christians. That's what happens when you possess eternal life. Things change. Things change in your life. Sometimes very slowly. Sometimes quickly. Sometimes slowly. Sometimes there's a little backstepping. Then back again. Okay? But they change. There's progression being made. And then you get to 1 John 4, 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves one another, they know that they are loved by God and knows God. They know that they have the love of God living inside of them. They have an intimate relationship with God. In verse 15, he says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. The true possessor of eternal life, they believe the truth about Jesus Christ. You see all those things? How we can know for certain that we're possessors of eternal life? But what if you are certain for all the wrong reasons? What if it's none of that? So if I were to ask you, are you certain right now that you have eternal life? Oh, I am certain. I am certain. Why? Just examine your own life. Why are you certain? Tell me why. Because when I was nine years old, I prayed and asked Jesus to save me. That's a good start. What else? What do you mean? I mean, what's happened since then? Any transformation, any change in your life, anything like that? I notice that you, you don't go to church anywhere and you've told me you don't read the Bible really that much and you know, every once in a while you'll pray when you get into trouble. But tell me, what else? I don't know what you mean, what else? I don't have anything else. Well, you tell me that you, you have a, a live-in uh, affair with your, your girlfriend. You guys live together. What's that all about? Is that what you're supposed to be doing? Oh, I don't know. I don't get... Don't give me a guilt trip. Okay, I'm just asking. I'm asking. What do you base your certainty on? That's all. This is not judgmentalism. I'm not trying to judge you. I'm just asking. Listen, if someone is basing their certainty of their salvation, of their eternal life on the wrong thing, is it not loving for us to point that out? Huh? Because that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants everyone to be walking around like zombies. I have eternal life because when I was nine, I accepted Jesus. Or I have eternal life because I went to this big, incredible thing. It was so awesome and I was so emotionally charged. And the guy up there was talking about Jesus. And he said, come down. And all the people came down. And I just, I didn't know what to do. I came down with them and I, I bowed and I prayed to Jesus. And that's how I know I have eternal life. Great. That was ten years ago. Anything happened in your life since then? No, not really. But I know I have eternal life. No, 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 whatever you did when you were down on the ground, whatever you did when you were eight, if there's no change after that happened, then that was not authentic, it was not real, it was not saving faith. That's my point. The church is filled with people today who do not possess eternal life, but they're walking around thinking they do. No, not unless you see change in your life. Something. Do you have any desire for the things of God? Any? 
Are you still absolutely in love with your sin? Don't get me wrong, beloved. We talked about this, right? Christians still sin. They still sin, and sometimes badly. They can even have seasons of sin. But, beloved, if it's a lifelong pattern of sin, I'm sorry, according to the Word of God, they do not possess eternal life. It's just that simple. So I just keep saying this. Hope in, because I know in this room this big... There are some of you who do not possess eternal life and you're thinking because you go to church or because you maybe even have a Bible and it's big, I don't know, that you're a possessor of eternal life. No, that is not that is not these things. You see what I'm saying? However, if you see real change in your life, and again, we still sin, right? But our life, the Christian life, is not a life of sin that is occasionally sprinkled with a little bit of righteousness. It is a life that is progressively becoming more righteous as we live out under the power of the Holy Spirit and cooperate with Him and He manifests that righteousness through our life in love and joy and good deeds and kindness. It is a life of righteousness that is still sprinkled with sin. And the Christian sins and the Christian repents and he turns from that sin and he thanks God for the forgiveness of that sin that he has in Jesus Christ and he begins to walk in newness of life and the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within him. And again, he begins to manifest the fruits of that very spirit of life of righteousness. Oh, there's ups and downs, but there's progression. If you see real change in your life, if you see a a desire and a motivation to obey God, to live for and follow after Jesus Christ, to love all those who are born of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you see an ever-decreasing love for the world, which is being replaced by a love for God and the things of God, if you see that, you know I don't, if you see that in your life, And I've seen that when men and women come up here and and they give their their testimonies. I think of Jason, right? I think of him and he's talking about this newness of life. He is a new creation, right? Why would he say that? How does he know that? Because things are happening. Things are changing. His thinking, his loves, his desires, little by little are changing in his life. What is that? That's eternal life. That's the new birth. That's what's taking place. The Spirit of God is working in him. And through him. And will continue to change him. Will Jason still sin? Yep. He probably did today. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I did. I just can't keep track of it all. You know. Because I'm trying to do all this and stuff. But I, I'm sure I did. In word or thought or deed. In some way. But there's progression. And I see something happening. It makes no sense for the, for the person to say. Oh I'm a child of God. What's changed? Listen, when God moves in, He doesn't go dormant. He doesn't hide in a corner. When you have the life of God in you, something's going to happen. And the something is, something good is going to happen. You will be changed. That's what John's saying. And He saw that change in them. He saw the reality of that. And He said, you guys know this. You love the brethren. You follow after Christ. You believe the truth. You have eternal And so as a Christian, if we see those things, beloved, even in little drops, okay? Because it takes time. 
know, some Christians, they jet off really fast in the first year. They come to Christ and, whoa, there's a lot of change, right? And then they might go through some, you know, and then they're back at it again. And other Christians, it's slow and it's not fast enough for them. And they start beating up on themselves. I was talking to one brother. I'm almost done. Seriously. I was talking to one brother. And he was beating up on himself. But I knew him enough at this point. I knew him enough. Brother in this church. And he started wondering if he had eternal life. So I started talking to him about the change I've already seen. And I asked him, what about that? What about that? What about that? And he says, yeah. And so even, even though it was a little, he could see God at work in his life. And brother, so I was able to tell him, brother, you have salvation. You have eternal life. It's there. I can see it. You even testified to it. And once you have it, there is no going back. God's got a hold of you. Why don't you just go with it? It would work out way better for you. It would. Stop fighting it, silly person. Stop. Go with it. Because God has the best life for you. Right? And when I say that, I don't mean big houses and nice cars and big bank accounts. I mean a life that is devoid of sin. A life lived in righteousness. A life that manifests itself in love for my spouse and my kids. A life that serves the body of Christ. A life that gives itself to help others. A life that proclaims the truth of Jesus Christ that others too might be saved. That's what I mean by good life. A life that will eventually end in perfect union with God in a place where none of the garbage that we have in this life exists. If you have any questions, if you have any doubts about your eternal life or you're not sure, would you talk to me? Or would you talk to someone? It doesn't have to be me. And there's no reason to be intimidated by me. My name's Jeremy. I'm just a guy like you, saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Still a sinner, being transformed, being changed day by day. I'm no different. I have a different task, maybe, in the church. You can talk to me. You can talk to someone else who you know is a Christian. If you have doubts, would you talk to us? We want to talk that through with you. There's, we don't want you to be in doubt, but I don't want you to be believing a lie either. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And Father, I just pray it would have its impact, its proper impact on our lives. Father, those of us who are truly your children, who know you, who have a personal relationship with you, who possess eternal life, May we find joy in complying with all that you have asked us to do. When you say do this, we do it. And in doing that, we're not earning our our eternal life. We're not earning our salvation, but we're demonstrating to ourselves we already have it. And it's because we have it that we're motivated and empowered to actually do what you've asked us to do. And we even like it. (laughs) It's not a burden. We want to do it. Because you've moved in and, and now the love of God is in us. We love you. You love us. Father, as that whole process happens, may we, be, may we see those things and be certain of our eternal life. And may that motivate us and inspire us to give ourselves more and completely and fully to you, God. Because we know where we're going. We know the end. We have different goals, different desires. Father, for those who have doubt or for those who think they have it and they don't. And God, I don't know who they are, but you know, help them to know. Convict them, Father. Please, don't let them continue to walk around in self-delusion, thinking they're, they're saved, they have a relationship with you, 
But not based on what the word of God says, just based on what someone told them years ago. Father, may their certainty be based on what the word of God says, not on what somebody else says. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.